The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at First, first Listen. Listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the fall of 1995, Audrey Edmonds was running a small in-home daycare center in Wanakee, Wisconsin. One of the children she cared for was a seven-month-old girl named Natalie Beard who had a troubling health history, both known and unknown, in addition to fussiness when it came to feeding. On the morning of October 16, 1995, as per usual, Natalie was set up in a car seat in a quiet room with a bottle to help her focus while feeding. According to Audrey, she had soon found Natalie unresponsive as formula ran from her nose and mouth and Audrey summoned paramedics who noticed Natalie's pupils were fixed and dilated and she was only taking short breaths. Tragically, Natalie died later on that night at the hospital and her autopsy revealed retinal and brain hemorrhaging as well as bruising on her scalp. Doctors ruled these findings to be evidence of shaken baby syndrome. At trial, medical experts testified with certainty Natalie's death was not the result of an accident, but rather recent, intentional, forceful conduct. And the most recent caregiver was Audrey Edmonds. With the stresses of childcare, it's easy to believe that something inside Audrey could have snapped. But this is wrongful conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Today, we're going to unpack the case of Audrey Edmonds, who was convicted of a crime that simply never happened, and she was sentenced to 18 years in prison. Audrey, I'm so sorry for what happened to you, but I'm super grateful that you're here now to share your story with us. Good morning. Likewise, and you know, we've covered Shaken Baby Syndrome, or SBS, not only on this show, but also in depth on wrongful conviction junk science when our host, Josh Dubin, spoke with Kate Judson, the executive director of the Center for Integrity and Forensic Sciences. And we've been asking her to join us when we cover a case like yours. But since the co-founder of that organization, Keith Finley, was your, your post-conviction attorney, we're going to give Kate the day off today. Keith, 
You also co-founded the Wisconsin Innocence Project, as well as the Innocence Network. I mean, <laughs> wow. Anyway, incredible. We're so honored to have you with us today. Thanks so much, Jason. Glad to be with you. Now, I know you know a lot about this hypothesis, which masquerades day in and day out as a decided science. Shaken baby syndrome is, as its founder, Dr. Norman Guthkelch, referred to it repeatedly, it's a hypothesis. That's all it is. It's a hypothesis. Right. And the hypothesis was that violently shaking an infant could cause the brain to sort of slosh around back and forth inside of the skull, which would in turn cause the bridging veins of the brain and eyes to tear and bleed inside the coverings of the brain and retinas, in addition to brain swelling, ultimately resulting in the triad of findings for which Dr. Guthkelch was trying to figure out, trying to solve. And this would then cause the child to lose consciousness or potentially even their life. This hypothesis has never, as Guthkelch himself said late in his life, has never been scientifically validated. And it's that for a very, very good reason. It's nearly impossible to do the kind of validation studies that would be required. To, to really test this scientifically, you need to do randomized controlled studies but for obvious ethical reasons, you can't shake a certain group of infants and compare them to a group of infants who are not shaken. Right. If this hypothesis was to be believed, then you'd not only be submitting these infants to abuse, but also what a proponent of SBS would believe is almost a certain death. However, there have been studies over time that have been able to disprove the hypothesis without shaking infants. And those revelations come down to what other injuries would also have to be present in addition to the triad of findings. The thing that really informs this is biomechanical research. Biomechanics is the study of the effects of force applied to the body. And what the biomechanical research shows consistently is that the most vigorous shaking that a human being can generate comes nowhere close to meeting the injury thresholds estimated in these kinds of cases. And if sufficient forces could be generated, that force would have to travel from the chest through the neck to the brain. The weak link there is the neck. The neck would almost certainly be severely damaged by that much shaking. And yet these cases almost never have any injuries of that sort. And it has since been proven that there are a multitude of other potential causes of the so-called triad. Everything ranging from choking to inherited conditions, coagulopathies, childhood stroke, accidental falls, you name it. There's just so many of them that there's, there's simply no way that a physician can, so, so to speak, diagnose this on the basis of the triad or associated findings. And yet that's exactly what they did in Audrey's case. Hers and so many others, because antithetical to the scientific method, doctors at that time were trained in medical school to just jump to this false conclusion each and every time they saw that triad of findings. But before this happened to you, Audrey, let's go back. Tell us about what your life was like. I grew up in Hudson, Wisconsin. I have three brothers. My dad was a teacher. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. We had a very middle-class life. We had a small home. We had one bathroom. We worked when we were old enough to. I had done a lot of babysitting, dog sitting. So you were predisposed to being a caregiver, even as a teenager. And what did you do after high school? I 
started a job in the St. Paul area right out of high school. And then I was married when I was almost 28 years old. And within a year, we had moved to Ohio. And in Ohio is where I had my first child, Carrie. And then when Carrie was still a toddler, your family moved to Wanakee, Wisconsin, where you went back to child care. How did that come about? As much as I enjoyed working, I really enjoyed and wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. And we were in a young neighborhood with lots of small children. People started asking me from time to time if I would watch their children. And that is how this all started for me, having children come to my house to take care of them. And I loved it. I mean, it all sounds wonderful. And you had two little ones of your own by that time, and you were expecting your third. So how great is that to be able to be with them full time while also providing this much needed service to your community and to other parents in the area? So tell me a little bit about your daycare facility. We had a a large ranch house, a kitchen in the center of the house. I had the master bedroom to the far left and two other bedrooms and a bathroom on the right-hand side. And I was not a licensed daycare since I didn't have several children every day. I took people as needed. And one of the families you helped was the Beards and their seven-month-old daughter, Natalie, who tragically passed away on October 16th, 1995. Were there Any potential warning signs regarding her health? Natalie's parents, this was their first child. They'd had a lot of problems with her fussiness and either taken her to the doctor or called the doctor 25 times in her 27 weeks of life. Wow. 25 doctor visits. That's a doctor visit a week. Pretty much. That's correct. And then also Natalie, unfortunately, was not able to roll over on her tummy. She couldn't prop herself up with her arms as most children do at that age. She couldn't hold her own bottle. And ever since I started taking care of her, she had a real hard time sucking. And I had asked her mom about that because most babies at that age, they will take down six to seven ounces in five to seven minutes. And it took Natalie at least 20 minutes. So I had accommodated her over the six plus weeks that I had taken care of her to give her the time needed to hold her, to help her eat and keep her away from noisy people. I mean, most of our audience probably at some point have fed a baby. And as you may have experienced, if the baby isn't feeling well or has some other stuff going on, it can be hard for them to maintain focus while feeding. So anything else notable about the lead up to that awful, fateful day? Yes. She had not been at my house since the previous Wednesday. So I hadn't seen her for four days. The previous Wednesday, after she'd been at my house, they took her into the doctor the next morning because they said she was fussy, and the doctor treated her with an ear infection. To the best of my knowledge, the coroner had noted that there was no ear infection in the autopsy. But also on that note, the mother did not tell me, but Natalie had projectile vomited that morning in her car seat on the way to my house, which is just around a half a block from their house to my house. So what was really wrong with her? 
many doctors who have studied these cases have said when the parents continue to bring her in for medical attention because they're crying, they need to start doing head scans to see if something is wrong internally that can't be detected with the little light that the doctor puts in the eyes and ears and nose. And had head scans been a regular practice back then, we might have known what was happening inside Natalie before it was too late for both her and for you, as it turns out, as these findings manifested and took her life while she was in your care. And it's proven these symptoms can take hours, if not days, to manifest before there's an outward symptom as it did happen in my care. But at that time, the most recent caregiver was almost always the one who was blamed. So let's talk about that morning. It was around 7.30 a.m. on October 16, 1995, when Cindy Beard dropped Natalie off. That morning, the mother could not get her to take her bottle. And babies should be hungry when they haven't eaten for 8 to 10 hours. But I knew that she was a very sensitive baby to noise, to any little jolting. And that's why I decided to put her away from the noise of the rest of the house. Audrey tried to calm the child by propping her up in a quiet bedroom in a car seat with a bottle. And she then went to tend to other children in her care. And within less than an hour, when she checked on Natalie, she found the child to be unresponsive, turning blue. I thought that she was choking, and I propped her upright against my body. I'm patting her on the back. She's not responding. And I run outside with her in my arms, screaming for a neighbor lady who comes down, and I'm babbling, telling her what's going on. And she's saying, you've got to call 911. The 911 call itself is really revealing. From the very get-go, Audrey is telling the rescue people that there was all kinds of formula coming out of the infant's nose and mouth. And when paramedics arrived, they said that they noted that there was formula coming out of the child. They said they found a child who had aspirated formula, and it appeared by all accounts to be a, a choking incident. So the paramedics also noted that Natalie's pupils were fixed and dilated, and she was taking short breaths. She was flown to University Hospital in Madison, where tragically she died that very night. A forensic pathologist named Dr. Robert Huntington performed the autopsy, which revealed extensive brain damage, dual retinal hemorrhaging, bleeding in the coverings of the brain, and bruising on her scalp. So the bleeds represent part of the triad, but what about the bruise? They couldn't say the timing of it. It was maybe fresh, but how fresh is fresh? Is it two hours? Is it two days? Could that have happened in transit to the hospital or while this little child was struggling to survive? What did Huntington make of that? Dr. Huntington said he thought it was too small to be of any consequence, and therefore he concluded this had to have been shaking. Right. Huntington ruled out accidental injury, saying that it was, quote, intentional, forceful conduct directed specifically at Natalie. But this murder diagnosis completely ignored not only her medical history that we've already discussed, but also what should have been a big red flag at the autopsy. Their own brain scans showed that this child had a chronic subdural hematoma, meaning previous episode of bleeding around the brain. It's well established in the medical research that chronic subdural hematomas are very susceptible to re-bleeding based on very little additional trauma or sometimes no trauma at all, just spontaneously, like a spontaneous nosebleed. 
and the prosecution and ultimately the court simply ignored all of these indications that the child was not a healthy baby and that she was a previously brain-injured child. And these kinds of earlier bleeds are sometimes written off as proof of previous abuse. But since they also believed that violent shaking caused an immediate demise, in the SBS proponent's mind, perhaps the alleged previous abuse wasn't forceful enough to kill. But now the alleged repeat offender, the most recent caregiver, had just finally been caught by way of the child's death. And that puts the onus on you, Audrey. Now, did you get the sense that Natalie's parents believed this as well? So Cindy called me at noontime that day, and she was very compassionate to me, asked me what happened. She was very concerned. I went to the hospital that afternoon, shortly after four, and we hugged, and we both cried, and I talked to her, and I told her how much I cared and how much I had tried to help Natalie that morning. She was very kind to me, and then once the prosecution went on the witch hunt after me, they told her not to speak to me anymore. So when did this witch hunt, as you so aptly called it, begin? Or when were you made aware of it? I had no clue that anything was trying to be held against me until January. I was just talking to anybody that came to talk to me. The chief of police who had come to my house earlier, Mr. Giese, he was very, very kind. I I just answered whatever questions, showed them anything they wanted to see. They took photos. And I thought this was just regular protocol. Typically, we see this diagnosis at the autopsy quickly turn into an accusation, charges, and arrest. But that didn't materialize until five months later, on March 19th, 1996. Now, you were charged with first-degree reckless homicide. As I mentioned earlier, you had two kids of your own and one more on the way. Perhaps they were waiting for that baby to arrive before bringing you in. I don't know. I mean, just thinking about you having to leave behind your two young children and a newborn, it's it's too much. It was horrible. My youngest was one month old. I had no clue why this was even happening, why I was charged, what they thought happened. I was so, so scared, but yet I kept thinking, well, nothing happened, so everything will be okay. And I was wrong. This episode is underwritten by global law firm Greenberg Traurig. Through its pro bono program, Greenberg Traurig leverages its more than 2,600 lawyers across 44 offices to serve the greater good of our communities and provide equal access to justice for all. In the field of criminal justice, Greenberg Traurig attorneys have exonerated and freed a man in Philadelphia, represent numerous individuals previously sentenced to life for crimes committed as juveniles in resentencing hearings, and received the American Bar Association's 2021 Exceptional Service Award for death penalty representation for their work on five death penalty cases. GT is reimagining what big law can be because a more just world only happens by design. This is what we call a science-dependent prosecution. The science, the medicine, the expert testimony comprise the entire case. It's almost unique in the law in that sense. There are really three things the prosecution had to prove. One is what's known as the actus reus. 
what happened. The medical professionals would come in and say, we can tell you exactly what happened. This child was violently shaken. The second thing they have to prove is what's known in the law as the mens rea, the mental state of the perpetrator. And in this case, the experts came in and testified, and we can tell you what mental state the perpetrator had because this would require such force, the equivalent of a second story fall or 30 mile an hour automobile accident, that it couldn't be done accidentally. And the third thing they have to prove is identity. The way the expert would prove identity would be to say a child so injured would become immediately comatose, flaccid, unresponsive, and therefore the last person with the child is the one who did it. That was Audrey. So that was the entirety of the case against Audrey. So the trial began on November 18th, 1996. The judge was Daniel Mosier and the prosecutor was assistant DA Dretchen Hayward. And the star witness for the prosecution was Dr. Robert Huntington, the forensic pathologist who had done the autopsy. He was joined in his testimony by a number of other doctors, pediatricians, ophthalmologists, a range of others who were uniform in their opinion that, as they said, nothing could cause this triad of findings except violent shaking. So what did Audrey's defense attorney, Steve Hurley, present? to counter all of that combined so-called medical expertise. The defense called their own expert witness, but reflecting how early this is in the life story of the shaken baby syndrome hypothesis, at that point, there was virtually no one who was challenging or disputing the hypothesis itself. So at the trial, all of the prosecution's witnesses were of one voice, were unanimous. This had to be shaking and nothing but shaking could cause it. The defense witness also believed this had to be shaking because that's just what the unquestioned dogma of the day was. And so the defense expert agreed it had to be shaking. The only thing she introduced was, but it could have happened before the child was in Audrey's care. Audrey, what about Natalie's mother, Cindy Beard? You mentioned that she didn't seem to blame you when Natalie was taken to the hospital. In fact, she expressed kindness and understanding, as you recall. Did she testify at the trial? Yes, she did. I I don't recall a whole lot about it. She had a hard time, of course, when Steve Hurley cross-examined her and talked to her about Natalie's pre-existing conditions. He was gentle around it, but he, he had some good, strong topics. The prosecutors basically told them that Audrey murdered your child. And despite the absurdity of that claim, that's what they led them to believe. And so I, I think that produced an inevitable hostility in there. I mean, who wouldn't be angry if you were told that your baby was murdered by someone, right? I mean, these people suffered a terrible tragedy. The problem is that I'm afraid that the prosecution kind of victimized the parents again by making them believe this story of murder rather than. But it's still awful, but not as awful, perhaps, that the child died of, of natural causes. And other than the defense's expert, Audrey, who else testified on your behalf? A lot of people, thankfully, came to my defense because they had seen me with Natalie day after day when I had her. I interacted with a lot of moms and neighbors, and they would see when she would cry, and I'd pick her up, and I'd pat her, and I'd comfort her, just little things like that. So if I can just add, Jason, the the defense was built a lot on the notion that this was just absurd to think that Audrey, with this sterling track record, would have snapped in 
in less than an hour of caring for Natalie after not having cared for her for four or five days and snapped to the point of violently shaking her to death. Nonetheless, with that bevy of uber-confident medical expert testimony, it doesn't appear that even a sterling track record made a bit of difference to the jury on November 26, 1996. The courtroom was full. Both sides had a lot of supporters, family, friends, and the closing arguments were horrifying when Gretchen Hayward still wants to talk like she was standing in my kitchen that day telling how I had shaken this child and bonked her head against a wall. And then the jury had some questions about first-degree reckless homicide versus second-degree and utter disregard to human life. My palms get sweaty just thinking about sitting in the hallway waiting. And then when we hear the jury has come to a decision and it's late at night and we go in and I heard that one awful, ugly word and I thought I was going to die. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The judge when he said 18 years, I felt like he was saying 
you have taken a life, so I want your kids to be away from you until they're adults. To this day, I still can't wrap my head around trying to prepare to be torn away from them. So much is taken away from you. You're put into a concrete cell with a tin toilet and a stranger, and you're trying to do the best you can to adapt and hold on to hope that this won't last long. Thankfully, my children's dad and my parents and other family members were wonderful for almost six years in bringing my children almost every weekend to see me. And on top of that, I had multiple phone calls to them throughout the week. We wrote a lot of letters. My kids' teachers throughout the years were great to send me things, report cards, projects. So I am really, really fortunate in that area because a lot of moms had little of no contact with their children. Then my kids' dad and I divorced about six years after I was in, and then I didn't see them as much, but I saw them often, and we kept in very close touch throughout all the years. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And meanwhile, you were doing literally everything you could possibly do to prove your innocence. Now, in 2002, your first appeal was denied. And then in 2003, Keith and the Wisconsin Innocence Project got involved. Now, from what I understand, Audrey's case was your introduction to the SBS hypothesis and eventually inspired you to start the Center for Integrity in Forensic Science. But at that time, knowing very little about the science, what made you take her case? It was a high-profile case here. So we all knew about the case and knew that it was a controversial conviction from the beginning. And her lawyer, Steve Hurley, is a really outstanding lawyer. And her appellate lawyer was Dean Strang, who many of you may remember is one of Stephen Avery's lawyers in the Netflix docuseries, Making a Murderer, who is a remarkable lawyer as well. And I knew them both well and knew that they were really troubled by this conviction, believing firmly that she was innocent. But the thing that really got us going is that a physician at the University of Wisconsin Hospital, Dr. Javid, approached us and said he thought there were problems with the scientific evidence, with the medical evidence that was used to convict her and that we should look into it. We started investigating and we found that that forensic pathologist, the medical examiner, you remember him, Dr. Robert Huntington, he had written a letter to the Journal of the National Association of Medical Examiners, in which he basically said, you know what? Our beliefs about timing of these injuries may have been wrong. I don't think he said we can actually time them to the last person with the child anymore. And he based that on an experience he had autopsying another child who died after being in the hospital for about 17 hours under expert supervision. And the child presented with the full triad, just like Natalie, but the child had been in the hospital for 17 hours where she was completely lucid. She was fussy and clingy, but she was lucid, aware, alert, and therefore she had what in the literature is known as an extended lucid interval. And from this, Dr. Huntington wrote, what we used to believe that the child would become unresponsive immediately, that's not always true. We can't conclude that. And so the medical examiner actually admitted that he was wrong. That's huge. He also said that having researched this further, there was now emerging growing body of research 
that was challenging the very hypothesis itself. And he therefore said he could no longer be confident with his testimony that this child was shaken at all. And so we reached out to Dr. Huntington and said we were working with Audrey Edmonds. The first thing he said, first thing out of his mouth was, oh, Audrey Edmonds, what are we going to do about Audrey Edmonds? So in 2007, you got an evidentiary hearing in which you presented, among several expert witnesses, Dr. Huntington himself. Dr. Huntington was courageous and forthright. And he, on the witness stand, he acknowledged that he was no longer comfortable with the testimony he had offered at Audrey's trial. One, he said he could no longer stand by his testimony that the injury almost certainly happened within two hours of the child's collapse. A lucid interval was possible, so he couldn't couldn't time it to, to match Audrey's care. The second thing he said, though, which was equally powerful, was that while at trial he was certain this case had to have involved a violent shaking, he now said because the whole field had become so much more controversial and more uncertain, he could no longer say whether there was any shaking at all or whether this might have been an impact. He said that original bruise that he saw at autopsy that he originally discounted as having been too minor to have been of consequence, he said he now couldn't rule that out. And the important thing about that is if that bruise, if that impact to the head was the cause, it could have been the product of prior abuse before the child got to Audrey's care, or it could have been an accident. Because another thing that the biomechanical research shows is that even minor falls, falls from just a few feet, generate 50 times more accelerations or more force than the most violent shaking that a human being can produce. And that even those kinds of minor accidental type falls do generate sufficient forces to exceed estimated injury thresholds. So he he basically said, I can't time it to Audrey. And I can't tell you if there was shaking or whether this was intentional or accidental. I, the medicine doesn't answer those questions. Pretty much refuting his own very damning testimony at the original trial. And to back him up, you had five other expert witnesses, all prominent physicians and pediatric neurosurgeons. In response, the state called four experts, most of whom had testified at the trial originally. And what we showed through the course of this was that there indeed can be a lucid interval, that a child so injured can experience a period where they are alert and responsive for hours, if not days, that although the medical science had been undisputed at the time of Audrey's trial, except for the question of timing, since then, enormous research had had emerged that suggested that shaking is an unlikely, if impossible, cause of these findings that it's simply myth, there's no science behind it, and we established that there are multiple possible causes for for these findings, and that's particularly important in a case like this where the child was previously ill. The child had a pre-existing subdural hematoma and was sick and was fussy and clingy, and the research now shows that those are all potential indications that the child is neurologically compromised and heading towards collapse. And yet, after you had established all of this updated scientific evidence, the original trial judge, Daniel Mosier, was not persuaded. He denied the motion and basically said, I believe the state's experts more. Yeah, sounds like he gave that a lot of thought. But of course, you appealed, which brings us up to January 31st, 2008. 
in a unanimous decision, the Court of Appeals reversed the trial court judge and said that Audrey had indeed presented newly discovered evidence in the form of new medical research that created a probability that at a retrial, she would be acquitted. And they said the trial judge had legally erred by applying the wrong standard, by substituting his own judgment about the guilt or innocence for that of the jury. And therefore, Audrey was entitled to a new trial, conviction vacated. Amen. That was a great day. That was a great day. I believe it. Audrey, can you tell me about those first moments on February 6, 2008, when you found out you were finally going to be released? It was awesome. It was a snowy day. I'm working on this auto parts scrapping line, and my supervisor's supervisor comes to me and says, Audrey, I have gotten a call, and you can legally come to my office to take a telephone call. And at first I was like, oh no, I can't do that. I was scared to death. You don't touch a telephone. You don't even think about touching a telephone because that's a form of escape. I'm this close to getting out. I'm not going to do anything. And she said, everything is okay. So I went to her office and we had a call with some people at Keith's office. And they said, the judge has a big trial next week, but he will put you in for your release hearing on Wednesday at noon. That Wednesday was a terrible snowstorm day. Madison got two feet of snow and at quarter to three that day in a massive snowstorm, I walked out. I didn't care where I slept that night as long as I was on the other side of the fence. By the way, there's this iconic, beautiful photograph of Audrey, <laughs> I believe in the parking lot, meeting with uh -huh. meeting with her friends, being reunited with them, with the snowstorm swirling around them and the wind blowing, uh -huh. and they're all reaching out to hug each other. It's just such pure joy. It's, it makes it, it all worthwhile. It was amazing. And I have to say on one thing, the prosecutor did say that they had contacted the parents and neither one objected to my release because had they objected, I could have been having to go back to county jail until the July hearing. So that was a big plus. Right. So although you were out, you were still in legal limbo until that hearing. Once Audrey's conviction was overturned, and the prosecution was thinking about whether to retry them, and then ultimately when they dismissed the charges. The prosecution continued to insist publicly and to tell the parents that Audrey had murdered their child, even though they no longer had any proof, no evidence. And to me, that was just morally indefensible. It was such a harmful thing to do to everyone. As a prosecutor, as a public servant, as a minister of justice in theory, you either prove your case in court by the requisite legal standard, or you accept the presumption of innocence. And they refused to give Audrey that. They refused to give Natalie Beard's family that. Yeah, it, 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 was, it was atrocious. I've never expected an I'm sorry for them, but I wish they would be big enough to say the truth that the medical evidence does not support the charge. But they did dismiss the case on July 11, 2008, and you were finally exonerated of these completely ludicrous, false, and unjust charges and able to return to your family at last. And I have to ask, I'm sure everyone's wondering, how are you doing now? And how are your kids? Because they were, in a sense, in prison 
with you during your entire ordeal, doing their own sort of time because of this horrible persecution. Mm-hmm. And they're good. They all have very good jobs. Two of them are married. I just found out that my baby is pregnant, so I will have two grandbabies. Yay, congratulations. I just saw my middle one over the weekend. She lives in Iowa, and she will be taking her boards to be a licensed practical nurse. And I'm just super thankful that they are doing well. I'm sure they have a scar from this. They don't hardly talk about it. I think it's just too hard for them. But they know that there are things still going on in, in my life that I, I, I speak out like I am today. And, I, and I'm grateful that there's just more and more awareness of these wrongful convictions. And you've also written a memoir called It Happened to Audrey, A Terrifying Journey from Loving Mom to Accused Baby Killer. We're going to put a link to that in our bio. I'm going to order a copy. I hope everybody does. And Keith, you've also co-authored a book along with a number of leading experts in this field, which is coming out very soon. I've already ordered this one, by the way. The book is called Shaken Baby Syndrome, Investigating the Abusive Head Trauma Controversy. I highly recommend it for anyone who has even a passing interest in learning more about this terrible, faulty hypothesis that has destroyed thousands of people's lives. We'll have a link to that in the bio too. And now we've come to one of my favorite, well, my favorite part of the show, really, which we call closing arguments. And this is the part where, first of all, I'm going to thank you, Audrey, for your courage and your strength and your grace and for being here to tell your incredible story. And Keith, as always, thank you for being an inspiration to all of us in the movement. And now I'm just going to turn my mic off, kick back in my chair with my headphones on, close my eyes, and just listen to anything else you want to say. Keith, let's start with you. Then you can just pass the mic off to Audrey, and she can take us off into the sunset. Yeah, Audrey's case and the the whole topic of shaken baby syndrome represents what is all too common in wrongful convictions, and that is a rush to judgment, an unquestioning acceptance of expertise and authorities, even when they are flawed, and a real vindictiveness and sort of the punitive nature of the culture we live in that, you know, when a baby dies, somebody's got to pay for it. And that's really, really tragic. The struggle continues, but the bright side of this, the, the bright note here is that there is a growing body of physicians, biomechanical engineers, and other scientists who are re-examining shaken baby syndrome, the the entire hypothesis, who are publishing in response to it. There will be more pushback. There will be efforts to silence or discredit critics, but eventually scientific truth will prevail. I'm confident. I just hope not too many more innocent people suffer the fate that Audrey suffered in the meantime. Just please be aware, if you're ever on a jury, really listen to truth and facts. No matter how many witnesses one side has versus the other. Use some common sense. Know the facts. Know the truth. Know the validity of any witness. Really be open-minded. Just because somebody is charged doesn't mean they have done the appropriate investigation and know all the facts of the case. 
and especially in cases like mine, please, please look at the medical scientific facts, not opinion. Opinion doesn't matter anymore and can be so well discredited as there are more and more people who are experts, who are researching these, who came to my attention, who came to Keith's attention. And don't look at these people that are not upgrading and updating their medical knowledge. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I want to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Annie Chelsea, Lila Robinson, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at First, first listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.